This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. I'm happy to welcome into the studio my next guest, Alex Schuth, who is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Denali Therapeutics. Alex, thanks for coming in. Carl, great to be here. Thanks. Great to be back on campus. Yeah, so Alex, you're a Wharton School grad. That's right, yeah, 2005. 2005. That seems like just yesterday, but I guess it's now <laughs> been 14 years. Seems like <laughs> yesterday and a long time ago. Yeah, and a long time ago. <laughs> All right, well, we've got a super interesting segment here to learn more about Denali. Why don't you go ahead and give us the elevator pitch? Actually, before you do that, let me, let me point our listeners uh, to your website. So it is... It is what? Denali? It is denalitherapeutics.com. Okay. So Denali as in the mountain, D-E-N-A-L-I, therapeutics.com. That's correct. Great. All right. If you're someplace safe, you can check out Denali while we're talking. All right. Give us the elevator pitch for Denali. Yeah. yeah so we have uh, a big goal at Denali. Our goal is to defeat neurodegeneration. So we discover and develop drugs for th- for diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, which collectively are probably the biggest unmet medical need of, of our time. These are devastating diseases which affect millions of people and their families, and there are very limited treatment options available. Um, it's not for lack of trying. In the past, there have been many attempts to discover and develop drugs for these diseases. Most of them have failed. We think it's a new time. We think it's a new era. We think that the progress in technology over the last couple of decades gives us new knowledge and insights into the disease and new technologies, and we're developing some of these technologies mm-hmm. ourselves, that we can go to the root cause of these diseases, identify the right patients that may benefit most from the drugs, and have a much better chance of success than in the past. Yeah. So what's so hard about neurodegenerative diseases? I mean, I, my sense of, I'm, not, I'm no expert in pharmaceuticals, but my sense is that Many of the major breakthroughs going back, say, 50 years have been taking these random small molecules and just discovering that they interfere with some known mechanism of disease. And so maybe they lower cholesterol or they they uh, are anti-inflammatories or they have some therapeutic benefit. Why hasn't that worked in neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah. yeah. So you're exactly right. There's been tremendous progress in medicine and other therapeutic areas. If you look at oncology, for example, in, 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 in the recent past, now with even hopes of curing some patients, the brain is different. The yeah. brain is, first of all, very hard to get to, yeah. um, and the brain is hard to understand. If you think about a tumor, um, you can cut out a tumor. You can slice it. You can look it under. You can put it under a microscope. You can study it. You can put the small molecules on top and see, see what happens. Not so much with the brain. Yeah. Um, so with the brain, it took uh, very uh, it, it it took new technologies such as imaging technologies, mm-hmm. the ability to look into the living human brain, um, which which really opens up much much progress. Mm-hmm. And is the approach that you take to addressing these disease a? I mean, again, in the in the classic pharmaceutical industry it was what I would call a push. You just tried some stuff and some of it, you didn't know whether you were going to get a, a hair loss drug or a diabetes drug. Uh, <laughs> and it, but in, with neurodegenerative diseases, do you have to be more rational about the, about the design? Do you have to look at understanding the mechanism and then say, okay, let's see if we can deliberately interfere with it? Yes, yeah. that's, that's, ex- that's exactly it. Often the mechanism is not clear. So for yeah. Alzheimer's, for the longest time, the mechanism was not clear. Yeah. What sheds some light into the mechanism is the genetics. Mm-hmm. So if you follow the genetics, you can get some insights into the root causes of the disease. So genes encode for proteins. Mm-hmm. And if you see some differences in genes between individuals that have the disease and the, those that don't have the disease, you can look at those proteins as potential targets which you may want to modulate as a potential therapy. 
And is that actually how you've gone at it? That's exactly how we go at yeah. it. So we develop a broad portfolio of therapeutic candidates. We have 12, 12 drug candidates that we currently work mm -hmm. on. And every one of those targets, every one of those pathways has a direct genetic link to the mm -hmm. disease. So we know that those pathways, those targets are implicated in mm -hmm. the disease. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing trial and error yeah. um, with, with the way we develop drugs, which is, by the way, the way oncologists develop yeah. oncology drugs. Yeah, and, and this is in the... Um, uh, what is the label for this kind of drug development? Is it is it a biotechnology? Is that the way you would characterize it, essentially? Yeah, it's yeah. very much biotechnology. You yeah. can also call it precision medicine. Yeah. What we're going after are very specific targets and probably also very specific patient populations. Yeah. So what we've seen in other fields of, of, uh, of, of medicine, and again, the oncology example, over time it became clear that breast can not all breast cancer is the same. It's actually different yeah. subtypes of patients where the disease is driven by different biologies. The same is probably true in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other diseases, where some, in some patients the disease is driven by inflammation. Yeah. In other patients it may be driven by a lack of function in the lysosome, the garbage disposal of the cell, yeah. or other pathways. Yeah. So that's, that's another avenue which we believe will yield a higher chance of success and more hope in the future. All right. So I would say most of the entrepreneurs I have on this show, I mean, my last guest on the show was an MIT student who wanted to buy dinner more affordably. And so he created a robotic restaurant. Uh, this somehow feels like it might feel a little bit different. Like it wasn't you and your buddies sitting around the couch one day and saying, you know, we ought to cure neurodegenerative disease. <laughs> give us, no. give us the origin story. Of Denali. I'm, 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 I'm glad, I'm glad you point that out. Um, so we launched Denali uh, just about four years ago, yeah. but the the idea, the commitment to do this goes uh, goes several years beyond, several years back to that. So the three co-founders, um, uh, Ryan Watts, who's our CEO, Mark Tessier-Levine, who's a board member of ours, and myself, we were working together at Genentech at a mm. time, at, at a big biotech, biopharma company here in, in, in San Francisco. We're building neurodegeneration. We're helping to build neurodegeneration at Genentech. We started that in 2005. Mm -hmm. A few years in, we realized, um, well, we saw the potential that in order to really make breakthroughs, we probably have to do this in the company of our own. Yeah. Large companies, Genentech is an amazing company, has revolutionized medicine in, 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 in certain areas. But in order to make really breakthroughs, mm. what you need is to, you need to move really fast mm. and you need to take lots of risk. Mm. And that is really hard to do in the context of a large company. So that was in 2010 where the three of us got together at Mark's house and we made the commitment, we, we have to do that. 2010 was not a great time to, fund, yeah. to found a company, especially not one that requires as much capital as, as what we are doing. Yeah. So it took a few years. We iterated on the plan and on the path and what we'd work on. And then in 2015, we had um, the group of investors mm -hmm. uh, with us who saw the world the same way. It's a new era. It's a new time. The time is right. Let's go and do this. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm going to tell listeners a story. I had a, I had Alex speak to my class, uh, two years ago. He's just started, you know, about half, you know, two years ago in a four year journey so far. And you put up your co-founder slide and the class literally busted out laughing. And <laughs> The reason they busted out laughing was the backgrounds of your of your team. <laughs> so maybe you can say a little bit about the background of this team. Yeah, ha um, happy to. So so Ryan Watts, he's he's our CEO. He is um, uh, he's a neuroscientist uh, by training. He led Genentech's neuroscience research group. Um, he's also uh, an amazing leader, yeah. um, in incredibly inspiring. Um, the third of us, uh, Mark Tessie-Levine, when we got to know him, he was chief scientific officer um, at Genentech. 
He is an, also a neuroscientist. He was a neuroscientist running an oncology company, yeah. essentially. He first coined the term, the science breaking open. He then went on to become uh, president of Rockefeller University yeah. and uh, recently moved back to the Bay Area to be president at Stanford University. Yeah, so not too many of us have a, a team like that <laughs> in our, on the first slide of, okay, here's our, here's our team. And you also, you're not too shabby yourself, so tell us, what, what, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so my um, grew up in Germany, as you as you may as you may hear on on uh, the accent here. Um, uh, w went through medical school in Germany. Loved medical school. Uh, loved every every piece of it. Um, uh, loved learning about the science. Loved interacting with patients. But at the end of medical school, it's somewhat sobering when you start clinical practice and you realize. There is uh, the treatment options are really limited. There is a lot of diseases where there is very little you can do. That was in 2000. 2000 was an era, an era, a time of also great optimism and enthusiasm, as you will remember. The uh, the, the human genome had just been uh, sequenced. President Clinton and Tony Blair stood out there and and announced the human. So I thought I'm going to try something different for a while. Always had an interest in business, so switched over. Worked for an investment bank for for a bit. Was in London uh, for for a little over two years. Thought that was great, learned a lot about capital markets, um, but didn't get closer to making making good medicines and make, making drugs. So uh, got to know Genentech through my banking days. Thought in order to really have a good, solid business career, I need a good business school. Mm -hmm. So applied to Wharton, was lucky enough to be accepted, spent two years at Wharton and then 10 years at Genentech. Yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to that. You said something really interesting because I would have said – if there were anywhere on the planet where you could tackle this problem, it would be at Genentech. Um, Genentech has capital. Genentech has labs. Genentech has amazingly talented people. Say a little bit more about why you felt it had to be done as a startup. Yeah. yeah. I think it comes back to, to three points. The first one is, again, speed. You have to move in order for new. You have to move lightning speed. And Genentech is an awesome company. Mm -hmm. But in 2010, it had just been acquired by Roche. It became mm -hmm. part of an 80,000 global yeah. organization with massive power, but not one that can move very fast. Mm -hmm. The second is risk-taking. You really have to try a lot of things, and you have to be wrong many, many times. And mm -hmm. that's not as easy to do in the context of a large company. And the third is really commitment. Mm -hmm. If you go after an issue like this, if you try to do something that hasn't been done before, you need a team that is singularly focused on the goal. And you cannot have other priorities. Right. And Genentech is the largest oncology company in mm -hmm. the world. Uh, that is number one priority, yeah. as it should be. Yeah. And you don't solve neurodegeneration as priority number three. Mm -hmm. So did you guys feel mutinous or or um like traders uh at genentech or did you talk it over with them i mean t tell us what the relationship <laughs> was with with genentech yeah we have a great relationship with yeah. with genentech we actually have a collaboration with genentech yeah. on one of the products that, that that we work with um it was a rocky time when yeah. when we left um uh we did talk it over with uh we did talk over the idea of spinning off a company mm -hmm. from genentech and doing this it did not get much traction mm -hmm. um, uh, at, at, at the time. Um, it was just not in the business model of, of Genentech. So uh, we actually got the very valuable advice from one senior leader who said, you know, you guys, I think you <laughs> just got to leave and then come back and ask for, uh, ask for something and we'll yeah. see how it goes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, very, it's very interesting. I mean, I think your insights are, are exactly right, which is speed and agility are super important and focus super important and also the idea that you've burned the lifeboats like there's no yes. going back it's just you guys yeah. focused on this thing that's exactly yeah. right yeah. yeah so um the other thing about taking on a goal of curing neurodegenerative disease uh not a small ambition is that you you can't just hack up a a, a minimum viable product in your apartment for uh, for five thousand dollars <laughs> what what does what did the first swing look like like what was the first thing you had to prove how much capital did it take to do that and who did you convince to give you that money yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we raised a lot of money in our in the Series A. We yeah. raised over $200 million in the Series A. All right, a. pause right there. So that's a really <laughs> big difference from building a, a food delivery app in, in your apartment, which is $200 million 
just to get started in That's this right. space. Yeah. I will also say that we spent $175 million last year. So what we're doing is extraordinarily capital, yeah. capital intensive. Yeah. So what kind of investor will give you $200 million bucks? Those investors that believe that this is the biggest unmet medical need, mm -hmm. that the time is right, that if you have the right team and you supply that team with the right tools and the right resources and you have everyone's commitment, that you can actually make progress. It needs a team with a track record, um, and this is what we, were, what we were able to build. The investors that we had, our lead investors in the Series A, were very big ones and very sophisticated yeah. investors. It was Fidelity. It was Arch, it was Flagship, and interestingly, it was the Alaska Permanent Fund, mm. which is the, 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 the quasi-sovereign wealth fund of the state of Alaska. So you named the company after them? <laughs> we did not name the company after them, but they <laughs> did appreciate the name. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and as I recall, it was also the – was it the government of Singapore? That, yeah. Tim Osik, that's correct. The yeah. government of Singapore yeah. also invested, yeah. Yeah, so those are not your typical venture – venture investors but but they are financial investors right they were doing this were, were they motivated by the wholesomeness of the mission or was that just a nice to have yeah. um it may have helped but they're definitely financial investors yeah. but they yeah. are financial investors with a very long time horizon right and they look at long trends and this they identified as a trend that over many years will play out and as in other areas of medicine there will be treatments at some point. Yeah. And that, I think, attracted them to yeah. this investment. If, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School. And I'm speaking with Alex Schuth, who's the COO and co-founder of Denali Therapeutics. Um, Alex, you know, again, in, in many ventures, when you write that business plan and you raise a Series A, even for $5 million or $10 million, usually you have a pretty good plan for how you're going to solve the problem. Yep. Did you guys know how you were going to cure neurodegenerative diseases when you raised that money? <laughs> so cure is a big word. Yeah, right. We have to be careful with all the right, word. Right, right. But we had a very detailed plan. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. All I, right. We did not yeah. get $200 million yeah. on a bunch of you know, guys who are, who are going about this. We had a very detailed plan. We had a very detailed biology strategy. Yeah. So we knew, we identified certain areas of biology that were previously underappreciated mm -hmm. as playing a role in neurodegeneration. Mm -hmm. So we were going after those. And we had a very detailed plan of certain products that we would discover internally mm -hmm. and certain products that we would bring in through yeah. deals. So... First thing that we did, we acquired a small single asset company mm -hmm. and brought that into us. Mm -hmm. We also brought in another asset from one of our venture investors mm -hmm. from Fidelity. Mm -hmm. We went out to, and very quickly did a series of deals with academic institutions mm -hmm. where we brought in assets and IP and expertise. Yeah. So by the end of 2015, after uh, seven months after being founded, we had nine programs in-house. And we had the critical mass to fully go after. And that. did you know what those nine programs were before you went and raised the, the money? Yes, pretty much. Yeah. And what, say what you mean. You say asset. It sounds yeah. like something the CIA would say. <laughs> <laughs> What's an asset? Sorry. sorry. An, asset, an asset in this case being a drug candidate. So, so, so what we build yeah. is a, a, a drug candidate as, candidate. A, as yeah, a drug yeah. is, is a drug once it's, yeah. once it's approved. Yeah. Yeah. So these were molecules with intellectual property and a certain data set yeah. around them. And were they all focused on the same on the same disease? So they're all focused so we are really driven by biology, not so much by therapeutic area. And this is again a lesson from oncology that yeah. there are certain biological pathways, certain biological processes that cause neurons, brain cells to die. Mm -hmm. So, and we focus on three areas of biology. The first one is the role of the immune system in the brain, which for a long time had been underappreciated, even though Alois Alzheimer in 1906 described mm -hmm. it, but he described plaques and tangle and microgliosis, the yeah. immune system. Everybody focused on plaques and tangles and the immune system was believed to be a consequence of neurodegeneration mm -hmm. rather than a cause. But there's growing evidence through genetics that the immune system plays a role. So 
bio, the role of the immune system was, is biology. One, two is the role of the lysosome. The lysosome is in the cell, is the garbage disposal in the cell. The lysosome keeps the cell healthy by processing proteins and other things. If the lysosome doesn't work well, bad stuff happens in the cell. So that's the second. And the third is an area what we call cellular homeostasis, mm -hmm. so just keeping a nice, smooth environment within the cell. So these are very specific areas of biology that we're going after, and within those, we went after specific targets and pathways. Okay, but let me ask it maybe in a simpler way. Would would those would would the biology you're working on apply then to more than one disease? Yes. Or, okay. So if you could make some breakthrough yes. in 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 one of those pathways, it could be applied, say, both to Alzheimer's and to ALS or something that's, like that. That's okay. exactly right. So right. one of our we have um two programs in clinical testing right mm -hmm. now. We run three clinical trials. One program which is which is a, on a, which is targeting a protein called RIP kinase, mm -hmm. we inhibit that protein. Mm -hmm. And this is in testing for ALS and Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and soon also in MS. Mm -hmm. So it's an inflammatory mechanism with the idea that if the immune system can be modulated in such a way that neurons don't die, that it may have right. a broader application. So how should we think about those nine assets? Were they yep. nine parallel paths, nine shots on goal, or were they... Were they Nine bricks that yeah. put together into a big wall. Yeah. <laughs> so they are, there are nine independent attempts. For, yeah. for, we don't really like the shots on goal yeah. thing because it does seem like there's some randomness to it. You just sort of a shotgun, which, which there is nothing random about, about what we do. This, yeah. this, these, are, these are nine programs, which each of them has a very solid uh, therapeutic rationale has a genetic link to the disease. The molecules are engineered in a specific way to get into the brain. We use biomarkers. But they're all very different. So they're different with, with respect to their risk profile, yeah. with respect to the timelines, et cetera. Now, was there enough data at the time you put together this plan that you could assign probabilities of success to each of those yeah. assets? Very dangerous game to apply <laughs> to apply probabilities of success, yeah. especially in neurodegeneration where the market seems so – once you start sort of um, probability adjusting, not a good area to build a financial model. And, and that. that's because the markets are like trillions of dollars. That's right. And so everything looks everything looks good, yes. even if it's a, a one in a million chance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You yeah. really have to treat everyone the same. You have to do the critical experiment on each of those programs. You have to do, as a good scientist would, the experiment to invalidate your hypothesis. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is you wanted to maximize the chance that you're going to yep. get something. Yep. Uh, clearly, you had some intuition that one asset was was not enough. Mm -hmm. But how did you know it wasn't going to take 20? Yeah. So at some point... Um, more is better, but at some, time, at some point you run into scale. Yeah. There's just so much you can do in a company. There's just mm -hmm. so many programs you can, mm -hmm. you can execute with rigor and, and full attention at the same time. We started at the end of the, at that first year with nine. We have 12 now. It's also important to say we stopped six programs along the way and replenished them. So the idea is to constantly have a very dynamic portfolio. And you hear the language, so, so asset and portfolio. Yeah. It's very much business school inspired yeah. portfolio modeling where you have independent, as much of independent assets as possible that are not linked. Right. Um, that don't share a, a common cause of failure, potential cause of failure. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. But so let me, let me see if I can feed that back to you. Mm -hmm. So, and your argument is that from an organizational standpoint, you can't really handle more than about a dozen programs. And, but you want, but more is all it's equal, more is better. So that leads you to have about a dozen, dozen programs. Some of those are going to fail, in which case you're going to replenish them. So you're always working on about a dozen. But is a dozen enough to be pretty sure that something's going to work? We cannot be sure. <laughs> Thanks for pressure testing yeah, this yeah, again. Yeah. We, we, we cannot be sure. We can yeah. give it the best shot that we yeah. have. We think we do through the rigorous approach on the science, through the technology, through the people. But there is no certainty in this yeah. business. Well, maybe you can just give us a sense of where you are. So you, you've, you now have 
12 in the portfolio. Yep. And if I caught what you said right, there have been a total of about 18 That's right. that you've explored. That's right. Uh, are any of them, uh, you don't like the goal metaphor, are any of them uh, past the finish line? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Um, so we um, are in clinical testing for two of those programs mm -hmm. across three different uh, indications. We plan by the end of this year to bring the next molecule, the next program into the clinic. Um, we also have the broad preclinical portfolio, which will then subsequently yield clinical candidates. Yeah. All right. Well, Alex, on, on that note, we're going to take a little break and hold our listeners in suspense to hear what, what happens next. Um, I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and I'm speaking this hour with Alex Schuth, who's the co-founder of Denali Therapeutics. Stay with us as we continue our conversation after the short break. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Alex Schuth, who's the co-founder and chief operating officer of Denali Therapeutics. So Alex and I were chatting at the break, and I said, what should we talk about? And he said, we got to talk about the blood-brain barrier. So while we're fresh off a break and while everyone's fresh uh, we're going to learn a little science so and, and medicine. So, so Alex, and, and this is radio, so no PowerPoint. So, All right. All right. so, uh, so give us, tell us about the blood-brain barrier and why it's important to Denali. Yeah, yeah. Ha happy to do that. Let me, let me introduce our little science lesson yeah. here for why, why it is important. So one of the first things that we did when we set up the company is we did what we call the graveyard analysis. We looked at all the trials in Alzheimer's disease in the past that have failed and try to learn from failure in the past to then address the re those, those reasons. One of the key obstacles in the past was getting drug into the brain. Mm. The brain is fascinating on many aspects. One of, the, one of the things about the brain is that it needs a very controlled environment yeah. that is very safe, where you always have the same blood pressure, you always have the same temperature, everything is constant in, in there. The way evolution did that over time was to evolve the so-called blood-brain barrier. Mm. What the blood-brain barrier does is it protects the brain from toxins mm -hmm. and from all substances that should not be in the brain. The way it does it is essentially through an inner lining in the blood vessels in the brain. So the blood vessels in the brain are different from the blood vessels in the rest of the body. In the rest of the body, nutrients and everything is just exchanged through diffusion. They're fenestrated, there are holes in it. In the brain, everything has to be actively transported mm. in, into the brain. And there, there are specialized transporters, proteins, that shuttle nutrients through from the vessel into the brain yeah so wait so when i so when i have that martini after work how, <laughs> how does the ethanol get in get in the brain <laughs> yes so good point you're going through so there are certain substances that yeah. can that can shuttle through ah. when they are very small okay. and when they have certain properties all right so certain small molecules including alcohol and certain and certain small molecule drugs they can they can yeah. cross cross uh, freely, but these are huge molecules. The ones you're talking about, exactly. Yeah. So we're what we're talking about are what what is called large molecules, also called biologic proteins. Yeah. So this is true biotechnology, yeah. right? So this is using antibodies or enzymes, which have proven to be fantastic drugs in other therapeutic areas in oncology or in lysosomal storage diseases, but they haven't been able to show their potential in the brain because they wouldn't get in. Yeah. Just in terms of size, different these are 500-fold bigger than your typical small than your typical yeah. aspirin yeah. or or, or yeah. something like that. So, we had to find a way to get those molecules into the brain. Mm. And this is where one of the one of the technologies that we're developing at Denali is a proprietary technology to engineer these molecules, antibodies and enzymes in such a way that they take advantage of the 
natural of the endogenous transporter mm -hmm. and just hitch a ride mm. through the blood-brain barrier into the brain. Mm. And so this would be sort of a platform technology. That, that, is, a, yeah. that is absolutely a platform yeah. technology. Yeah. And, and so there are certain molecules that are already being used essentially to get across the blood-brain barrier. You, you bind to those and hitch the ride. In and out. Yeah. So there are certain endogenous transporters yeah. that serve the natural purpose of shuttling substances yeah. into the brain. So we use a transporter called transferrin receptor, mm. which shuttles iron from the blood into the brain. Mm. We can latch on to that transferrin receptor in a way that doesn't interfere with iron transport and hitch a ride through the blood-brain barrier, through the cell layer into the brain. And what we can do is we can increase the amount of drug in the brain uh, by about 20 or 30-fold. Wow. So then we get into areas where those drugs really can, can, can be effective yeah. at, at the target. So, so how does the development process work? Do you work on the different pieces independently? So do you work on, okay, how can we get a molecule into the, into the brain? And then do you work directly in brain tissue with that molecule to say, does it interfere with the disease? Yeah. So, th so this mechanism that I just described, it's called receptor mediated transcytosis. Mm -hmm. This is an idea that is, that is not new. That is an idea that's been around actually for a couple of decades, but it hasn't really been what we call industrialized. It, mm -hmm. it has been mostly an academic idea that, that we put in, put into action. We have, amazing protein engineers, antibody engineers that are able to change the amino acid sequence of the antibodies in such a way that they can latch on. Mm. Now, how we test those antibodies is a really good question because it is another sign of how the confluence, the convergence of different technologies open up a new space. So for example, we had to make a mouse using CRISPR technology with a humanized blood-brain barrier. Okay, hold it, hold it, hold it. You had to make a mouse, yeah. by which Sound, you mean. <laughs> okay, so that sounds, that's, <laughs> that's, so what, what CRISPR technology, yeah. which is a gene editing technology, mm -hmm. what that allows is to, is, to, is to edit certain genes in an organism. And the blood-brain barrier of the mouse is rather similar to the blood-brain yeah. barrier of a human, except in certain instances. So, for example, transferrin receptor. Yeah. So we introduced human transferrin receptor mm. into the blood-brain barrier of a mouse. Mm. That is a proprietary mouse that lives <laughs> in our vivarium in South San Francisco. And it is the perfect model system to I study see. these antibodies that if, if we can get those into the brain. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's... By the way, that's all super fascinating. It just gives us, it should give everyone so much humility about just how hard these problems are and also just how much intellectual property is associated with doing something like this. I mean, you've got intellectual property in the tools mm -hmm. that you use to build, that's to, right. to engineer these, these, uh, these, these treatments. It's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. But so, so you, you will have a team working in mouse models just on the transport yes. phenomenon. And then what about the, the, the disease mechanism itself? Will you then separately work in brain tissue to try to understand how to interfere with the disease mechanism? Yes, yeah. that's, okay. that's exactly right. So we have at Denali currently, we're about 200 people at Denali. Yeah. About 130, 140 of those are scientists. Wow. We have about 50 in biology, and they do basic biology. Mm -hmm. So what they, they, study, they study brain tissue. They study what is the impact of certain mutations in the genome on the survival of, of, of brain cells. And then we have protein engineers, chemists, and then we have the group, what we call the biomarker, biomarker mm -hmm. group, that really also studies and, and the, the, the impact on disease and, tra and, and tries to identify and validate biomarkers to track uh, the impact of our drugs on the disease. And then we have the clinical development group, of course. All right. Yeah, it is so humbling. The whole thing is, is just mind-blowing and humbling. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question 
that you said you couldn't answer at the break, but I want our <laughs> listeners to hear it and hear why. So I at the break, I said, Alex, so give us a forecast. How, how long is it going to take before <laughs> you actually have something that, that works? What's the answer? Yeah, we really cannot predict how long it takes. We, there are, we have two programs in clinical development right now. We yeah. will take additional programs into clinical development, but we cannot be driven by a timeline on a, on a time to market. Yeah. We have to be rigorous in the development. We have to be able to stop and we have to be ready to stop programs at any time yeah. if, the data, if the data don't hold up. Yeah. What, what does clinical development mean? In this context, clinical development, as in as in other therapeutic areas, uh, means it's typically divided into three phases mm -hmm. of of testing the effect of a drug in humans. It starts with a phase one, where you test the safety and and the tolerability of a drug. Then typically, so those are healthy healthy volunteers. Just does it make them sick? Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. it's it's often healthy volunteers. Um, sometimes it's also directly in patients. But yeah. but the primary endpoint is safety and tolerability. Mm -hmm. And also, we try to learn more about the drug in those studies. What's called the pharmacokinetics mm -hmm. and the pharmacodynamics, how the drug mm -hmm. distributes in the body. And then also, what's really important: do we modulate the biology? So through so-called biomarkers again. So we can test in healthy volunteers. We can test. Does the drug address the biology that right. we want to modulate? Right. Because healthies have the have the same biology yeah. as as well. Phase two is early efficacy studies, and phase three are typically the confirmative efficacy yeah. studies. Yeah, and re you you said it, but remind us, yeah. you have a couple of treatments that are in phase one. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So you got a lot a lot of road ahead of you. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. And I will I will uh, agree with your point that it is very humbling along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I wanted to ask you that because it tees up a, a question I've wanted to ask, which is you hear so many people lamenting that Wall Street has short-term perspective. No one's willing to invest for the, for the long term. Everyone's looking quarter to quarter. What's your response to that? That clearly can't be the case for your business, right? It is not the case. Um, it was not our experience, but I will not generalize with yeah. respect to investors here. So what we have found with the investors that we have, I don't think they are the average investor. Mm -hmm. um, but there are groups of investors out there which are very long term. Um, we have uh, one investor, Bailey Gifford, out of out of Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, early investors in Illumina, in Amazon. Mm -hmm. That is what they look like. They look in long term uh, trends. Capital is is available. It was one of the when we went on the IPO roadshow, right? Yeah. So so two weeks and everybody tells you it's going to be grueling and it's going to be awesome. In fact, it was actually very inspiring yeah. in the end because there were a number of investors that welcomed us and said, "Yes, we're with you. The time is right. We believe in the team. We believe in the approach, and we're we're going to be with you." Now. They hold us accountable to our data at every step along the way. At every update call, they see, are we making progress? Are we moving forward? Yeah. But it's not about quarterly results. Yeah. It cannot be in yeah. this business. Yeah. If, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Alex Schuth, who's the co-founder and CEO of Denali Therapeutics. Um, you, you, you jumped you mentioned the IPO and I wanted to, I, it was definitely on my list of things to talk about. So let's spend a, a little, yeah. little bit on it. Um, you know, most people would think of IPOs as occurring when companies have achieved some profitability milestones, they have their business model figured out and so forth. That's not really the way it works in, in pharmaceuticals. Uh, talk, tell us a little bit about why that is. Yeah. The capital market for a biotech company, under, it's very sophisticated investors. Yeah. They understand the science. They understand the timelines. They understand the risks that are, that are involved. The reason to go public is because we need the access to capital. Yeah. This is so capital intensive. We yeah. need to be able to go back to the market at, at times. It's not uncommon. In, in fact, it is by now the, almost the norm for companies to go public um, in early phases of clinical development. Yeah. There are also companies that go public in, in, in preclinical. So the capital is definitely but, available. But let me just push a little bit on the finance questions because yeah. you, you said you'd raised 
you had raised in um, with in private equity venture capital around two hundred million. How much? How much had you raised? In total, we raised three hundred eighty before the IPO okay, between the, between the Series A and the Series B. Series B, Series A, three hundred eighty. Yeah. But in today's world, there are plenty of private equity investors who will do billion dollar uh, private private investments. Um, why do you choose IPO over using one of those investors? Those billion-dollar investments are less common in, in the biotech space, yeah. maybe more in the technology space. But really, the, the driver for us was we need the access to the very liquid, very deep um, public market. Yeah. We need to be able to go back to the market at any time and not be, not be uh, dependent on yeah. the private market. Yeah, so probably just to put a little sharper point on that, when you get a billion dollars from SoftBank – they are taking a they have a ninety percent probability of success with that investment, something like that. Uh, a billion dollar bet on you guys is not a ninety percent probability of success. So you would have to be a very, very deep pocketed investor to take those kinds That's kinds right. of bets. Yeah. That's right. So uh, explain just a little bit how how the public markets work. So you raised two hundred and forty million dollars, something like that, in the in the IPO. Um, can you literally? At any moment, get another hundred million dollars if you need to. Is that the way it works? Yeah. So we have not raised more money yeah. since, since the IPO. Um, the public market is very liquid yeah. through shelf filings. It is it is possible to raise money um, on on very short notice yeah. when when needed. Um, it is in biotech an established, a very established, yeah. very liquid, very transparent market. Yeah. All right. So so let's go back to the actual IPO process. So it's not that unusual a thing. It's a mm-hmm. standard thing in 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 biotech. Mm-hmm. And but tell us a little bit about what it's like to go public. What was the what's the process <laughs> like? Yeah. yeah. It's um it's it's a lot of fun. It's actually it was it was um it was a very healthy exercise for the company yeah. as well because once you go public, you really we had a business plan beforehand and um, we had a very thought through, but once you go public, it raises the level of the game. Yeah. You really have to articulate your plan and you really have to get everything. You need your strategy airtight. You need your, your, your plans, your, your numbers. So we knew that we had the company set up from the beginning as at some point we will go public. So we had all the controls and everything in place. So the transition for us was not as dramatic um, as it might be for some other companies. So we went public in uh, December of, of 2017. Um, we had a number of our investors previously that are public market investors. So we knew that we knew a large group of the investors that would invest in the IPO. Uh, I see, right? like Fidelity, for instance, those right. kinds of players. Fidelity, Temasek, yeah. Bailey yeah. Gifford, yeah. and there were several others who, who knew they would participate in yeah. The IPO. So I, I I couldn't resist just taking a look at your, your share price, and I'm you know I know you're an officer of public companies, so you have to be super careful about this. But but um, uh, your share price moved ten percent today. Uh, so what's it like to deal with that volatility that's out there yeah. just in public yeah. uh, every day? Yeah. Um, the answer is the share. The the answer is. Um, the share price matters, but internally it doesn't. It really doesn't matter, yeah. and you have to you have to be disciplined and not look at the not share look. price yeah. all the time, yeah. and not make the share price. The mar, the biotech is highly volatile. Yeah. Um, it it moves with or without news from the company. So, what really matters is that we make progress on the science that that increases over time the valuation of the company that we then have further access to capital. Yeah. But day to day, it does not yeah. matter. So the other thing I, I wanted to turn to uh, uh, another topic, which is even though you're still an indeterminate time away from customers and customers paying for these drugs, you have revenues. So talk a little bit about how that works and the partnerships with with other players. Yeah. Yes. So we do have collaboration revenue. Yeah. We had in uh, 2018, mm-hmm. last year, we uh, signed two collaboration agreements with large global pharmaceutical companies, one with Takeda from Japan and, and one with Sanofi in, mm-hmm. in, in, in France. Um, 
these collaborations, uh, we also look at them in the long term as increasing our chance of success mm -hmm. by teaming up with established global pharma companies that can um, that allow us to broaden our portfolio and help us to share some of the cost and, and, and some of the risk. So these um, transactions are, again, not unusual in the biotech space. They, they are a common way for companies to, um, to, to, to help finance the R&D expense um, before you get to the market and you actually have revenues from selling drugs. So what you... In, in, in the case, what you offer, for example, Sanofi here with one of our programs is the ability to jointly with us mm -hmm. develop and then commercialize the mm -hmm. product. We will share development costs and we will share the revenues 50-50 down, down the road. And in exchange for that, Sanofi paid us $125 million up front. They will pay us milestones um, along the way. Yeah. So it's it's almost... It, as you said, it's, it's literally another form of financing, effectively. It it is more than fi it's the financing it's is part of it, but it's also, more of finding. Yeah. But they also there is true value in the collaboration yeah. with respect to experience and clinical development, global reach in with the, with respect to the commercial infrastructure, certain certain tools and technologies that they can provide. Okay, well, I want to you. Uh, come back to you and, and your background, your education. You had left investment banking and went to Wharton to get an MBA uh, in pursuit of this goal of really working on this large medical need. Uh, talk a little bit about your day-to-day -day role as COO. What's what's the job like and yeah. what do you do, actually yeah. do? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's a little bit of everything, but yeah. what what my what my role is is um, everything around our pipeline and our portfolio. So it's portfolio management and corporate development. So it's broadly around portfolio strategy. The question: How many programs do we work on? Yeah. Where do we get those programs from? How do we partner up with? large pharmaceutical companies in the execution of that. So in my team are the, the program directors, the people who work, um, who, who drive the program execution day to day, as well as uh, the deal makers who, and the alliance managers who work with academic institutions and other companies. And, and how has, if you reflect on the decision you made back how many years, it's been 15 almost 20 years, make the decision to leave clinical practice and to pursue business. Uh, was that the right decision? And, and how have you reflected on that uh, in, in this role? Yeah, I think it was the right decision yeah. for me. I do, I do miss medicine. I, yeah. I would have liked to be closer to medicine. I, I love medicine, but for me, it was, it was the right decision. Um, uh, but yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, maybe uh, as as our our last topic or one of our last topics, we could talk a little bit about the organizational development at Denali. You are a company that has to plan for really long time horizons, and your primary asset is human capital. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about how you've thought about building the comp building the organization. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a really good point because we are in this for the long term and our yeah. people need to be in this for the long term. So we think a lot about sustainable, high performance, right? So if you found if you found a company, if you start in a startup, there is so much going on and it's it's a race and it's um, uh, it is it is it is wild. It's exhausting. People work work hard and a long time, but you have to have people that are able to to work for years and, and, and maybe for, for, for many years on this program. So we think a lot about, um, we think a lot about culture. We think a lot about values. We think a lot about different phenotypes of people, right? How to recognize and to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So it gives away that we are a biology company. Yeah. So phenotypes is there are different people on a team. Take a sports analogy. Yeah. You need different team. You need yeah. different players on a team. Um, in many companies, it's the inventor get, that gets all the credit and all the spotlight. But the reality is the inventor, him or herself, doesn't really 
get anywhere. Inventor needs a problem solver, mm -hmm. needs an accelerator, needs a connector that pulls another resource, needs a, what we call a grinder as well. So somebody who just walks through. So we think a lot, we think a lot about um, how do we build a company for the long term. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what does, tell us a little bit about the feel of Denali. What's it like? What does it look like? And what does the organization feel like? Yeah. It uh, it uh, is awesome. It yeah. it what what really look looking back at those four years, what really blows me away when I when I walk in in the morning are the people that that joined us, and it has exceeded my and Ryan's and and Mark's wildest expectation. It's it's not the number of people, it's it's the type of people, it's their their qualification, but really how they show up every day, and it's the it's the commitment. So if you we, if you summarize the feel at Denali, it's this commitment. It's commitment to the cause, mm -hmm. the cause of defeating de degeneration, but then really commitment to each other. So this feeling that we're all in this together, that there is no individual success, that we can only succeed together. So it's a very non-hierarchical group. Yeah. So it's, it's Silicon Valley-inspired open office. There is no, there is, there is no assigned seating. Um, we have no org chart. Um, literally no org literally chart. no org chart, which yeah. drives some people crazy at yeah. some point where so yeah. too, but we think org charts box people in yeah. right it shows where they are and so we try to stay away from titles as much as possible we don't talk about titles it doesn't matter if on a team somebody is a director or a senior director so it is a very collaborative organization what we cannot have is people with with big egos yeah we cannot have people who think that they can that we can solve things so it's it's uh it's an exciting and, and also a very fun environment. But you mentioned the point earlier. It's also very humbling. We have setbacks. I mentioned the six programs that we stopped along the way. We have, we have some successes and we have setbacks yeah. um, all the time. Yeah. You know, I've wondered if it takes a certain kind of person to work on a project where you may not even in your own career see the end of the program. That's right. Yeah. So that's, it's a pretty special kind of person who will who will work in 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 that kind of environment. And you probably have to focus on the satisfaction of process as much as anything. You would ha you have to be driven by the mission. You really have to be driven by the cause, and you have to really believe that every day you're getting a step closer, or over time you get closer to that goal. I wouldn't say we're driven by process. I, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, by the journey. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. All right. Well, uh, Alex, every time I, I talk to you and I hear about Denali, I am humbled and also just awed and uh, so thankful that you guys are doing this work. So thanks so much for making the time to come into the studio and telling us this fascinating story. Thank you so much, Carl, for inviting me. That was great. All right. You can check out Denali online at Denali therapeutics.com. That just about does it for today's show. If you've got a question about something you heard or have suggestions for companies or guests you'd like to hear featured on the show, send us a note. Our email address is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. To follow me, go to my website, ktulrich.com. That's K-T-U-L-R-I-C-H.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at ktulrich. I'd like to thank today's guests, Ryan Sim from We the People, Michael Farid from Spice, and once again, Alex Schuth from Denali Therapeutics. Thanks also to producer Dana Cash, assistant producer Charlene Gatto, engineer Jeff Simmons, and Taylor Durham, associate director of communications at the Wharton School. And thank you for joining us on today's show. I'm Carl Ulrich, vice dean of entrepreneurship and innovation at Wharton, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 